And we're back. Well, at least I'm back anyhow. I'm here by myself today. No Aaron, no Mike, no fact checkers, just me in the new studio. Yeah, you you heard me correctly, new studio. We uh, I do want to take a moment and just kind of apologize for the lack of posting, uh, the lack of episodes here recently. We've just we've had some things come up, you know. Life has happened. Not to make excuses, but uh, but like I said, we do have a new studio location that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, we're excited about it, though. We just weren't anticipating it, so that kind of put us behind a little bit in the recording process. Also, you know, senior year, my daughter volleyball. Uh, life's a little bit crazy. Aaron's a football coach. We're right in the middle of the full swing of things, so. Just some unexpected stuff's come up, so we apologize for the delay in getting new episodes to you, but uh, we are back today. I am going to be recording the first part of this, uh, which is going to be a multi-episode series. Uh, We're still working on our biblical mysteries. We we finished up King Solomon's Minds uh, what feels like an eternity ago, and if you actually are one of the few who look forward to new releases of Beyond the Walls. It may have felt like an eternity to you as well, as long as it's been since we put something out there. But this is going to be the first part in a multi-part episode on biblical mysteries. We're going to be looking at the Ark of the Covenant this time. A little bit of a format change for you. What I'm going to be doing is you're going to get an episode that's just me. Going back, way back to less than a year ago when we first started this, and it's just me in front of a microphone recording. We're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to lay out a little bit of a biblical aspect and a biblical angle of this for you. And then I'm also going to look at some theoretical locations because the Ark just kind of disappears. Uh, It's talked about, talked about, talked about all throughout uh, the Old Testament and scriptures up to a certain point. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just vanishes. Um, No mention of it. Uh, A lot of people tie that back to the Babylonian um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar coming in, overthrowing Jerusalem in 586 AD, and we'll we'll look into that. But I'm going to look at some biblical theories. Then what we're going to do is we're going to come back in here in about a week. We're going to record some more. It's going to be the three of us, myself, Aaron, Mike, and we're going to look at a little bit of the pop culture aspect of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to look at more of the uh, conspiracy theories. We're going to look at more of the popular culture, extra-biblical Uh, theories behind what's going on. Where's the ark? Is it still around? Who has it? Who knows it? All of that stuff. So if you enjoy that kind of stuff, these episodes are going to be for you. So sit down, grab you a cup of coffee, whatever you choose to drink. Just kick back, relax, put your earbuds in. Here we go. You are listening to Beyond the Walls podcast with writer and speaker Ben James. Just to give you a little bit of a mental image as we get started into this episode on the Ark of the Covenant, I am here in the studio. I have the fedora on. I have the jacket on. I have the bullwhip at my side. I am full-on Indiana Jones-type thing happening here. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a reason that there is not a television camera in front of me. I most definitely have the face for radio. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Like we said in the cold open, it's been a little bit um, since we have been able to get into the recording studio. Again, it's just me, Ben James, your host here today of Beyond the Walls podcast. We're going to be looking at the Ark of the Covenant. I want to start out this episode by giving a little bit of a biblical history behind what the Ark of the Covenant was. Most everyone in pop culture, most everyone in our society understands, at least for the most part, what the Ark of the Covenant was. If whether you have any type of church history or not, typically if you are around my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, you understand from the Indiana Jones movies there is an Ark of the Covenant. But to take a look at the history of the Ark beyond Hollywood, uh, beyond Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford, Let's go back a little bit in the Bible and let's understand exactly what it is that we're talking about before we get into how did it disappear, where did it go, uh, did it survive the the overthrow of Jerusalem, 
Uh, is it somewhere in a in a warehouse? Is it buried beneath the, the desert? Where is it at? What's it doing? So let's get a little bit of an insight, a little bit of a background into what the biblical history of the Ark of the Covenant was. In the book of Exodus, which is an account of the Israelites who were in Egyptian bondage for several hundreds of years, there was a man that God sent named Moses. He was a Hebrew by birth, raised as an Egyptian, and then he murdered someone, and then he fled for his life. God raises him up, sends him back into Egypt, the place where he was once a part of, to set the nation of Israel free from the slavery that they were in in Egypt. So the Exodus, or the book of Exit, that, that records and details the Exodus of the Israeli people from underneath Egyptian bondage, there's a portion of it that God instructs Moses when Moses uh, takes one of his trips up to Mount Sinai. God instructs Moses um, during this 40-day stay to build an ark that he can store the tablets of the Ten Commandments on. Uh, so going back to pop culture, going back to the movies, go ahead and picture Charlton Heston in your head coming down off the mountains with the two tablets of stone. That's, that's what we're talking about here. So he gives him these instructions on how this ark needs to be built. Uh, the book of Exodus gives us some detailed instructions. Uh, it's basically two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits in breadth, and one and a half in height. It's basically 52 inches by 31 inches by 31 inches, uh, if we're going to put it in Moroccan. Now, it's to be made entirely of gold. Okay, not, not complete and total gold from beginning to end because uh, pure gold we know is pliable. It would never hold up. So it is basically gold overlaid wood, this container, this ark, uh, this box that's made to hold the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was topped with a golden lid, and upon this lid were two cherubim, basically two angels is what a cherubim is, and they were facing one another, and their wings were shaped in a, in a way that the tips of their wings touched each other in the middle of the ark, in the middle of the lid there. And this is what's referred to as the mercy seat of God. And what they instructed to do once construction was complete, once it was housed, as the Israelites were going through the wilderness, they spent 40 years there, what should have been the numbers vary, but probably what should have been no more than a three-week journey from Egypt into the land that God had promised them. They spent 40 years wandering around in this wilderness, in this desert-type area. And whenever they would move, the ark was supposed to move with them. And they, whenever they would settle in a place for a little while, they would set up something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had outer courts, then it had a tent, basically. And in this tent were two compartments. One were the inner courts, or as you walk in, that's what you that's what you were in, was the inner courts at that point. But then there was a center room called the Holy of Holies. Now, in this Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant stayed, and this is where the presence of God rested. And the reason I went off on that little construction, little tangent there, was because where the cherubim's wings touched on top of this Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God dwelt. It's where it rested, and it's called, it's referred to as the mercy seat. That's where God's presence would set. When the Israelites, when they were led by Joshua into the promised land, now this is, this is after some years, like I said, 40-some years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses had died. Joshua was the new leader. And they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And there's a couple Old Testament stories that the Ark of the Covenant really plays a, a predominant role in. And them crossing into the Promised Land was one of those because they were getting ready to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River, by all accounts at this time, was in flood stage, so it was very treacherous, very dangerous. It wasn't just uh, some type of creek that you could just easily navigate through. But it's said that God tells Joshua to have the priests who were carrying the ark. And the ark had these, had these round circles that it was to be carried because you could not touch it. Uh, that's an important side note there, that you could not physically touch 
the ark, and, and we'll we'll take a look here in a little bit at uh, at someone who actually lost their life for doing this. But it, it had rings on the top of the lid, and basically there was these two very, very long wooden poles that you would slide through these rings and that the priest would carry it on their shoulders, uh, all the while not actually physically contacting the ark. But when they get up to the Jordan, God tells Joshua, go ahead, have your priest wade out into the water. I will cause the water to cut off from upstream and you'll walk across, uh, basically on dry land. And that's exactly what happened. Once the priest got settled in, to uh, the depths of the Jordan once they got into a, a safe area and they were standing there, all of them uh, in the Jordan River, the water began to slowly recede and the Ark of the Covenant played a role in them actually crossing over into the Promised Land. That's found in Joshua chapter 3 if you're, if you're interested in that. One of the more famous stories, Sunday school-wise, and, and really what should be something that we uncover depths of as we go along if you're a Christian in your Christian walk, but one of the more popular stories is the walls of Jericho. Whenever they come up to the city of Jericho, it's a great walled city, and it's within the promised land, so it is actually a place that God wants them to inherit. But all of a sudden, they come to this great fortified city, and, and God's command to Joshua is, make a circle of the city once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, um, and, 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 and carry the ark as you go. It was carried around the city once a day for seven days, and it was preceded um, by the armed men and the priests sounding the seven trumpets of the ram's horns. So it was leading the procession here as they were wandering, or as they were walking around this city during the day. Now on the seventh day, the seven priests sounding the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark compassed the city seven times. And then they were instructed to give a great shout. And when this happened, the walls of Jericho fell down flat and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, took the city. That's in Joshua chapter 6. Now, there was a famous defeat uh, in Joshua chapter 7 um, at Ai, basically, and that's how it's spelled, Ai. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly as, as my Eastern Kentucky dialect and linguistical skills will allow me here, but Joshua lamented before the ark. Uh, when Joshua read the law to the people between um, the Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they stood on each side of the ark as he was reading the law. Uh, we next hear of the ark in Bethel, where it was being cared for by the priests, um, the grandson basically of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. Uh, and that's you know, Bethel is translated to be the house of God. And that's found in Judges chapter 20. Uh, in verse 26, according to this verse, it was consulted, the ark was consulted by the people of Israel when they were planning to attack the Benjamites later in battle. But the ark at, at some point... It was kept at Shiloh. It's another religious center. That's about 10 miles north of Bethel. So it finds a temporary resting spot there at Shiloh. Uh, and this was during Samuel's apprenticeship, the, uh, the great judge Samuel, right before uh, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. They had these judges. Uh, and one of them, one of the more famous ones, was named Samuel. During its time at Shiloh, it was cared for by a priest named Eli, basically his two sons. A few years after this, the elders of Israel decided to take the ark out onto the battlefield uh, as they were going against the Philistines. Hey, you know, you got something that hosts the presence of God. Why not take it out, give it a trial run on the field of battle, you know? And they did this after they were defeated uh, during battle, and it, you can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 4 verses 3 through 11 but once they did this they were uh, they were pretty handily defeated uh, with the loss of about 30,000 men at this time it was at this time that the ark was actually captured it was captured by the Philistine army uh, and the the two sons of Eli were killed the priests in charge of the care of it they were killed by the Philistine army the news of this of the capture uh, was taken back by a messenger to Shiloh, and the scripture declares, with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head, he told the priest Eli. And Eli fell dead whenever he heard the news. Now, there's 
There's a whole big backstory here. Eli and his two sons, we don't have time to get into it. Maybe at a later episode we'll get into that, but uh, but it wasn't that they died this noble death protecting the ark, and then all of a sudden Eli just falls dead because of it. There's there's a little bit of backstory there, and if you get a chance, go ahead and, and read that because it is, it is quite an interesting uh, story. The Philistines, once they got possession of it, they took the ark to several places, to be honest with you. They, they took it all around their country. But in the end, really misfortune kind of followed them wherever the ark was. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and at Ashdod, it was placed in the temple of Dagon. The next morning, Dagon was found prostrate, bowed down before it, and on being restored to his place after being picked up, he was on the following morning again found in the same position and completely broken. It's kind of a humorous thing. You know, people talk about the Bible, you know, just being this straight-laced, you know, never really getting colorful, never really getting outside of the conservative box here. Well, I'm going to read you a passage. Well, I'm going to refer to a passage here. And what happened to the Philistines and the people of Ashdod? And they kind of really wanted to get rid of the ark after this. But... Basically, the people of Ashdod were smitten with um, hemorrhoids. No easy way to say that. They were just, uh, they were smitten with hemorrhoids. And then, on top of that, there was a plague of mice that was sent over their land. And that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 6. There was some more stuff that was going on. The affliction of boils was also visited upon the people of Gath. Wherever this ark was traveling with the Philistine people, they weren't having a pleasant experience with it. And uh, and finally, um, the ark was was successfully removed. I doubt, I doubt there was a great deal of resistance in Ekron. That's that's referenced in First Samuel five eight. If I've got something that's a constant source of hemorrhoids, a little bit of a mice problem, uh, and, and also some boils. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful gold box. I love it. Looks good on the mantle over there, but you know what? Uh, I'm about out of preparation age, so can we just go ahead and, yeah, you all just take that back. You know, after the ark had been among them for about seven months, the Philistines, um, on the it's still in, you know, Philistine possession, but nowhere that it's resting do these people want it because it's not bringing great things. They they get with their diviners, you know, the people who read their fortunes, tell them what they need to do, what the gods are saying. They're the interpreters of it, and they basically just say, hey, um, yeah, we think that it's time for this to go back to the Israelites. We think we're done with this thing. Uh, so it was returned to the Israelites. Uh, they accompanied the return with an offering consisting of golden images of the tumors and mice wherewithin they had been afflicted. <laughs> and as your parting gift, Jim, show them what they've won. Yeah, they gold tumors, golden mice. I don't know the aesthetic value of that, but I'm pretty sure that the Philistines were just going, here, take your box, don't want it no more. Oh, and by the way, we've got some valuable stuff over here. Yeah, we may be a little sore about this, but but here's some stuff. Here's some golden stuff to go along with it. Oh, yeah, that's a tumor. Yeah, you want to know what that is? Yeah, that's a mouse. Yeah, have fun with this thing. The ark was then set up in the field of Joshua, the Bashamite. And the Bashamites offered sacrifices and burnt offerings in celebration and thankfulness of its return. Uh, out of curiosity, the men of Beth Shemesh gazed at the ark and as punishment were smitten by the Lord. The Beth Shemites sent Kirjath Jerahim, the Bethshemites sent for this to be removed in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and it was taken to the house of Abinadab, whose son, Eleazar, was sanctified to keep it. And it remained there for 20 years. Now, under Saul, the ark was with the army before he first met the Philistines. But the king was too impatient to consult it before engaging in battle. And in 1 Chronicle 13.3, it is stated that the people were not accustomed to consulting the ark in the days of Saul. At the beginning of his reign uh, over Israel, King David removed the ark uh, from Abinadab's, basically his house, with great rejoicing. I mean, there was a great procession of it. There was a big parade. They were rejoicing that the ark of the covenant was coming back home. On the way to Zion, which is where the ark was headed to, Uzzah, 
UZZA, uh, one of the drivers of the cart uh, that carried the ark, put out his hand to steady the ark. It said that it became unstable and that he put his hand on the ark and was struck dead by God for touching it. Now, there's a couple different theories out there because I have a hard time reconciling within myself the fact of here we have a man who is trying to keep the ark from sustaining damage and God strikes him dead for doing that. Now, I have a hard time reconciling that inside of myself, but there are various theories out there as to why he was struck dead. One of the prevailing ones is that uh, it was really not supposed to happen this way to begin with. There really shouldn't have been a procession. Shouldn't have really been a you know celebration. There really should not have been made a big deal out of that. It should have just come back, and that it was basically all of this was being done out of disobedience to begin with. So that was the reason. But to be honest with you, I really don't have enough insight. Not studied it studied it enough, nor am I really educated enough to give you a really good theory and guess as to why this happened. All I know is that it did. Um, when this happened, as a result, David, in fear, uh, carried the ark aside into the house of Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, instead of carrying it to Zion, and there it stayed for three months. Now, you can read about this in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13. Um, yeah, hold the phone there for a minute. It's all fun and games till the guy dies, right? Uh, it's all fun and games, and we're having a big old merry time here. We're throwing a party, and then somebody loses his life. Yeah, I don't know if I want a part of this thing anymore. Let's, uh, let me see, let me see. Hey, hey, here's a house. Let's go ahead. Hey, who are you? Okay, yeah, we're going to put this here for a few months. But plot twist, upon hearing how God had blessed the house that the ark was resting in, David decides it's time to get it now. Because the presence of the ark was in the house, he was being blessed. So, hey, I like to be blessed. Let's go ahead and bring this thing back. So, David had it brought back to Zion. But he had the Levites do it. Um, while uh, while he himself, girded with, an, with a linen ephod, and danced before the Lord with all of his might. Um, now this grew. This this gained him a little bit of, of scorn from his wife. Uh, and one of the famous lines in the Bible, David basically says, "Woman, I will become even more undignified than this." He was dancing in his underwear, basically, uh, in public. She got onto him, and he was like, "Listen, to worship the Lord, I'll become even more undignified than this." So we see a real. If you ever think that your relationship with God, if you are alone in the fact that it's kind of like a roller coaster ride, and that some days you're really good and you're really on fire and everything's going really well, and the next day you feel like you don't, um, you don't even deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as God. Don't worry. <laughs> the man after God's own heart, King David was also one of those people as well that uh, that was on a little bit of a roller coaster ride. During the construction of Solomon's temple, now this Solomon, David's son, was the next in line. Uh, David wanted to build the temple, couldn't. Some things happened, again, the roller coaster ride, couldn't build it, so Solomon gets to build it. So it's no longer a tabernacle nation. It's no longer that was Israel going to be a nation of just wherever we can settle, wherever we can find, wherever we can set up shop for a little while. That's where we're going to be. That's where the center of the nation is going to be. Now we're in Jerusalem. Now there's going to be a temple built. A, I mean, they were in Jerusalem to begin with, but now the, the house of God, the place where God's presence dwells, is now going to find a home, and that's in the temple of Solomon. And there was a room uh, that was built and that was prepared to receive and to house the ark. Uh, the Holy of Holies, just like in the tabernacle, uh, that's the same thing in the temple. And when the temple was dedicated, the ark, which contained the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, was placed therein. When the priest emerged from the holy place after placing the ark there, it said that the temple was filled with a cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now, here's, here's another area that I... I don't know if I would say that I struggle with reconciling. This is just one of those questions that I have in my mind that holds a little bit of tension as far as um, the Bible. We're told in Hebrews 
that there are three things that are contained within the Ark of the Covenant. The broken tablets of the Ten Commandments that, that Moses brought back from Mount Sinai. It said there was a container of manna, which during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that we talked about, um, the Israelites, their clothes never ran out their, you know, they, they never wore out their shoes, didn't have holes in them. And every day, except for one day during the week, they were supplied with manna from heaven. It was supernatural food that they were given uh, for these 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness. So it said that there was a container, uh, a, excuse me, there was a container of manna within there also, and also uh, an almond branch. And, and we won't get into that, but it was an almond branch that was cut off. Uh, it was cut away completely from the source, but still yet budded. All three of these are prophetic pictures, symbolic of Jesus Christ. We won't go there right now, but that's what Hebrews says was in there. Uh, and in the Old Testament, only two out of those three show up in there. So I don't know. I don't know which one. Maybe they're both accurate. Maybe I'm just losing it in translation there. But that's one of those areas that in one place you have two, in another place you have three. So it's just something if you want to look up. It's 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 interesting. I mean, it's not a make or break thing in my relationship with Jesus, but it's a little bit of a question for me. Now, in 586 BC, here's where we get to the point where all of these questions start surfacing. In 586 BC, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, they come in and they basically wipe out Jerusalem. And it's around the turn, it's, it's in 587 when the temple is just completely laid flat. Uh, there's no record, no record. It just goes completely silent about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. In the book of Kings, in the book of Chronicles, there's nothing. In an ancient Greek version of the Bible, third book of Ezra, uh, suggests that the Babylonians took away the vessels of the Ark of God, but it doesn't mention the taking away of the Ark itself. Basically, here's, here's what it says. And they took all the holy vessels of the Lord, both great and small, with the vessels of the ark of God and the king's treasures, and they carried them away into Babylon. So that gives you a little bit of a biblical history into the ark of the covenant, what its purpose was, who possessed it, who had it. But this is one of those things that you just really can't put a nice, tidy little bow around, and that bothers a lot of people, myself included, because I want to know what happened to it. But it just really goes silent. So... In this episode, as I've stated before, we're going to look at some of the biblical theories uh, or the theories that can be pulled out of the Bible as to what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. I will state up front that just about all of these theories that I'm getting ready to present to you are theories that have been developed by much smarter men and women than I, but yet all of them find their foundation in the silence. And basically what that means is that it's just not said. There may be some things implied, but there's no actual detailing of what happened. So we're developing a lot of these theories, all of these theories, all of these possibilities of what could have happened to the ark. Is the ark around today? Was it destroyed? Do we know where it's at? And there's just governments that don't tell us where it's at. All of these things are developed out of silence. So as we move on to the theories as to the location or the ultimate fate of the Ark of the Covenant, I think it's important for us to take a moment just to understand why uh, the Ark is such a sought-after item. I mean, it is the most desired archaeological find that there could ever be. This thing not only, I mean, you can look at it from a value standpoint as far as monetarily. Gold, you know, the finest, richest of golds, the, the best woods. I mean, it, it's, its value is, is astronomical, and I wouldn't even begin to try to put a figure on it. But if you look back beyond the monetary value, and then you go to the historical value, that this is something that was critically important in so much of a rich nation of the Israel history, um, it would be, its value would just be 
you, you couldn't even put a price tag on that either from the standpoint of its significance. But let's go even deeper than that and even more significant than that. The people who have this in history have always been the power of the world. You have the power of God. You have the presence of God. You have this all-supreme being encapsulated in this box, but yet it is the ultimate weapon. And I believe, I personally, and, and we'll get to this a little bit later with the theories, but I believe that's one of the reasons that we don't know where it's at from the political standpoint, from the power standpoint, from the socioeconomic standpoint. This is why that you can look and see so many people with so many theories and writings and life. You know, people have dedicated their life's work to finding what the ultimate destination or the location or the fate of the Ark of the Covenant was, was just because this is the pinnacle of historical finds if it have ever happens. There are a couple that may rival it, uh, Holy Grail, different things of that nature, you know, the, the Spear of Destiny. Those would all be huge, but we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant here. So let's begin to take a look at some of these theories that really can can point us back. Either we have some biblical evidence behind the theories or some biblical concepts or some biblical players in these theories. And, and again, it's good for us to, re, to remember that these are all arguments of silence, uh, the silence of the Scripture. There's no smoking gun here. There's no one place that we can look and just say, hey, boom, here's where Scripture gives us evidence of exactly what happens to it. We have none of that. But first, let's go with the with the first view, and we'll go with the Samaritan view. Um, not a whole lot of history that I'm going to try to unpack with the Samaritan, but the, the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as, as a cultural mix. They, were, um, they weren't pure blood. They believed, the Samaritans believed that it never made it to Jerusalem at all. They believed that the true Ark of the Covenant never made it to Jerusalem. They believed that it rested at the, at their sacred mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. They this this theory kind of rotates around the priest Eli that we talked about a little bit earlier. They believed that he replicated everything um, that was of value, and they believed that what ultimately made it to Jerusalem was a replica. They believed that they have it. And they believe that all of the other artifacts that they have are the genuine are the genuine article, and or I should not say have had at that point, and that all the rest of them were replicas that Eli had made. They believe that Uzi, U Z Z I, who was a priest at the time, hid all of the real artifacts in this cave on Mount Gerizim. So it's an interesting, interesting theory. There's, there's really not a whole lot of evidence that can back this up. But the thing about it is one of, one of the biggest things, uh, the debunking of this, would have to go with Josephus um, and some of his writings. Because during the time of Pontius Pilate, um, a Samaritan, it's recorded that a Samaritan spoke that he would show them at Mount Gerizim where Moses hid the Ark of the Covenant. A little bit of a problem here. Mount Gerizim is located in the Promised Land. And if we go back to the biblical text, we understand that Moses never entered into the Promised Land. He got to see the Promised Land, but he never actually stepped foot onto the Promised Land. So this theory loses steam very, very quickly. It sounds good. Um, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, someone had the ultimate hoodwink right here, you know, that they had replicated everything. Eli was this mastermind. Uh, Uzi hid it in, in a cave with Mount Gerizim, along with all the other genuine artifacts and everything that made it uh, within the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, wherever it resided with them. Those were all fakes. But 
at the end of the day, the Bible just simply does not advance this theory at all. Actually, it does quite the opposite. It debunks it completely and totally, because if Moses was the one who did it, then, yeah, he never made it to the promised land. Two, I, I, I debated whether to put this one in this episode or not, because we will be covering this again in part two or part three of these episodes. It's not only historical reference, but it's also pop cultural as well. Um, and we're talking about the Pharaoh known as Shishak. Uh, now, the reason that I debated this is because this is the theory that's put forth in the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Uh, Shishak took the Ark um, and he took it back to Tanis, Egypt, which was kind of the cultural center or the cultural capital at that time. And, and according to the movie, it got there and God's wrath, you know, he was so angry because of what they were doing with the ark that he, he buried it uh, in a chamber under the sand. And, and if you're familiar with the movie, uh, this is a conversation with Marcus Brody and Indiana Jones and a couple, um, a couple other guys who are wanting them to, uh, to go on this quest. And they talk about the well of souls and how the light shines through at just the perfect time of day. And it's just, it's an amazing movie. I really love this movie, but this theory is pretty much arrived at from a passage in first Kings chapter 14 verses 25 through 27, where it says, It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Some believed that this was an actual replica. Some believe that he actually took a replica here. You know, we're making all kinds of fakes. We're replicating this Ark of the Covenant several times already in these theories, but that's what a lot of people believe is that that if Shishak did get it, then it was a replica that he took back to Tanis with him. But the the thing about it is this is kind of debunked. Uh, Shishank is another name. You know, Shishak was never really in the Egyptian canon of their history. Um, a lot of people believe that it was a takeoff of Shashank who was. And one of the problems with this theory of Shishak going and getting it, bringing it back to Tanis is, I, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but if I am conquesting and I go and I find the, the pinnacle of treasures. I mean, if I'm looking through the storehouse and the treasures of the temple in Jerusalem, then, hey, that big golden box over there in the corner, yeah, let's grab that. That looks pretty nice. I, you know, I think that there would have been something recorded about it. Even in the biblical text out of 1 Kings 14, we hear that they've taken all the treasures out of there. It doesn't say anything about the ark. And the problem that I have personally with that is a lot of people just say, well, the ark was included in all of the treasures. It could be, could be. But the problem that I have with that is the ark of the covenant is so detailed for such a long time in the nation of Israel's history. And I mean, it did, you know, it, it went here with them. And, you know, whenever they crossed the river, that was the first thing to go through on the priest's shoulder. Hey, when they came to the walls of Jericho, that's what led everyone around by the, Hey, in battle, this is what happened here. And, you know, when they gave this decree, they were standing on either side of it and, you know, Oh, the Philistines took it. And here's where it went. It detailed its places, step by step by step, and here's the problems that it caused, and oh, we got it back. It just feels to me like if I get my hands on the Ark of the Covenant, I'm going to be talking about that. I'm going to write something about it. I'm going to bring attention to that. But in 1 Kings 14, we see no attention to it. Okay, so let's, let's go beyond the scope of biblical reference. Shishank and Shishak, however you want to refer to him, there's some 
some writings that are archived of his conquest and the places he'd been and the places he'd overthrown. And nowhere in his writings do we find anything about the Ark of the Covenant. But let's go beyond that. He doesn't, he doesn't even say anything about going to Jerusalem. There's no record in his personal records that he even stepped foot into Jerusalem. And so we've got that working against it. And then there's also some chronological issues that go along with this and, and conflict with the stories. You know, a, a lot of people, many people believe that the priest, faithful, let's say he did, let's say Shishak did go to to, uh, to Jerusalem. And let's let's say that, yeah, everything was wiped out. Again, if I've got my hands on the ark, I'm talking about it. But if I go there with the thought in mind that I'm not only going to steal all the treasures, but I'm going to get the fabled Ark of the Covenant, and I get there and I get my hands on some treasure, but I don't get my hands on the Ark, maybe I'm not going to be so chatty about that. Maybe I'm not going to talk about that so much. Maybe I'm not going to write about that so much. Could it be? Here's, here's something, and again, we cannot cannot prove any of this, but here's a theory that could it be that maybe, just maybe, there were some faithful priests who knew he was coming, who knew this was happening. The attack maybe was in progress or was impending and, and just inevitable. Hey, let's get this thing out of here. And I don't really have time to go into it now. We may get into it in next week's recording, but there are miles upon miles upon miles 18, 20 miles of tunnels systems, of tunneling system underneath the city of Jerusalem. Could it be they knew they were coming? They were faithful. They got it out of there. They hid it in one of the secret chambers. Not to go all Harry Potter on the on the Ark of the Covenant here, but maybe there was a secret chamber. Maybe there was a tunnel. Maybe there was somewhere that wasn't was not easily accessible. And maybe they took it there. 1 Samuel 4 and 5, they talk explicitly about the removal, but they don't talk about it here. I mean, think about that. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, it gives us in detail about the removal of the ark. But if it's removed here, there's not a word about it. Yeah, And then in Isaiah 37, 16, with King Hezekiah, who lived, this is basically 700-702 B.C., it talks about God still being enthroned within the cherubim. Now, let's back up. I don't think I gave any time frame as to this conquest of Shishak here. We're looking at probably around 920 B.C., so we're talking about 220, 218 years removed from this conquest. Now, is it possible that in this book, in uh, in Isaiah 37, that they're talking about maybe he's just having a dream, maybe he's having a vision? Sure it is. Sure it's a possibility. But the thing about it is, is if we are looking at it from a literal sense, if this is literally happening, if this is a reality, then 220 years later, the ark, if the ark left, it's back. There, there's just, there's a few problems there. And, you know, this wasn't the only passage. Ezekiel 8, 4, chapter 8, verse 4, 9, verse 3. You know, all of these things are issuing chronological problems with this theory that the ark went to Tannis with Shishak. And, you know, even, even the writing, even the writing in 1 Kings, there was problems with it because, now maybe not the whole book, yeah, there's there's some debate on this, but we know at least it was finished after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So we've got some problems here with the chronological timeline of Shishak actually getting his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. So I just, to me, it just doesn't bear. I, I love it. I love the concept, love the movie. I love the screenplay that this, this provided, but I just don't think it's a very logical explanation as to the, the fate of the Ark of the Covenant. So the third one that 
Jehoash removed the ark. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured the king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of the Ephraim of the corner of the gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. This is a northern... Now, let me, let me give a little bit of history here if you haven't listed, listened to some of our previous shows and, and maybe you're just finding the show right now. The nation of Israel, after King Solomon, it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom remained Israel. The southern kingdom remained Judah. Um, the northern kingdom had the majority of the land, the majority of the resources, the majority of the, tri- the original tribes. But the thing about it is, is Judah, the southern kingdom, remained in control of Jerusalem. That was still their capital city. So Jehoash, in this passage of Scripture, and this is about 800 to 802 B.C., somewhere around in that time frame, is that he was a northern king who invaded a southern kingdom. You see, the, the ark here, if we're looking at it from the standpoint of that it survived, okay, and that it made it out, it has to get out sometime before the 586 B.C. timeline to survive because that's when Babylon came in and overthrew Jerusalem and, and, and demolished the temple and laid waste to the city. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a thing here, a thought, that even though that the nations were at odds against each other, let's say, the northern and the southern kingdom. There were, there were battles, there was conflict, there was tension there, but they still shared some form of similar bond, that they had the same history, they had the same heritage, they came from the same place, and maybe maybe there was just a little bit of a tender spot in, Je- a tender spot in Jehoash's heart in regards to the southern kingdom, in regards to Jerusalem, in regards to the temple, in regards to their history. Maybe, maybe, maybe he saw a vulnerable situation well beforehand. Maybe he saw a southern kingdom that wasn't necessarily powerful, wasn't necessarily stable. Uh, And let's not pretend that it was completely noble with him coming in. It wasn't. But the fact of the matter is maybe he looked at that and thought, you know, maybe we should get the ark to a safer place. Maybe with all the treasures, everything else that I'm going to take here, everything else that I'm going to loot, let's take the ark of the covenant. Because the city, the temple, everything was destroyed in 586. So it had to get out of there somehow if it survived. If you believe, if you want to subscribe to the theories that the Ark is still around today or that it survived after that, you have to figure out one of your theories. Whichever theory you subscribe to, it has to be that the Ark made it out. And this is one of them that would supply you with that out, even though, again, we have no... Uh, solid proof that this actually happened. This would actually be something that would provide you with the ark being removed from Jerusalem. That brings us to theory number four that we're covering in this episode. And quite honestly, this is going to be the last theory that we cover in this episode. Not that that is the last theory, even from a biblical perspective, perspective, but it's going to be the last one that we cover here, and it's going to kind of actually encapsulate two or three different theories, but they kind of all run together and kind of intertwine, so I'm going to put them all into one theory. Uh, Don't worry. If there's other biblical theories that you're thinking that are related to the Ark of the Covenant, we'll get to those next week, but it's kind of hard right now to draw um, just purely biblical, and I know I did with Tannis. With Egypt, I kind of bled over into pop, pop culture with Indiana Jones, but the rest of them I cannot divide. Uh, any type of you know biblical, uh, draw a biblical line in the sand and say, here's where the biblical theory ends and here's where the pop culture theory begins. 
So we're going to get to those next week. But this fourth and final one for this episode, as far as theories go, is that the Ark found its way to Ethiopia. Again, this one begins in the time of Manasseh, King Manasseh, horrible, wretched, ungodly king. But they do believe, some believe, that yet again there were some faithful priests. There may have even been a king at the time. There's a couple of them that uh, that I'm not going to mention here, but some people have thrown out that maybe the king was the one who did. Maybe they knew that uh, what was happening in the reign of Manasseh, they saw it coming, and they, they began to feel the oppression, and they began to see what he was all about, and they thought, hey, we need to get this thing out of here. We need to get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. So they believed that there was some strings pulled and, you know, Maybe it got into Ethiopia a little bit or some into some hands because there was a big, there's still a Jewish population in Ethiopia. There's a Christian population in Ethiopia, but still to this day, there is a Jewish remnant there in Ethiopia that very much follows the rabbinic code and the laws. So there, there's a lot of people that's, that's putting two and two together with this theory. In, in this capacity, the priest or a king snuck it out. It got into the hands of some faithful um, people, and they got it to Ethiopia somehow. Uh, I Personally, I don't know if two and two is making four right there, um, but to some people it does. To me, not so much, but that's kind of where they're going with this because in Second Kings uh, 21.7, it talks about Manasseh erecting um, an Asherah pole. Um, and, and in Deuteronomy, it said that even in the court of God that you couldn't establish anything, you know, wooden or any type of image or idol in the presence of God. So, you know, some people think that they saw this happening and they wanted, they didn't want destruction coming upon God's destruction anyhow coming upon their nation. So they went ahead and got it out of there, got it to Ethiopia. Again, that route to Ethiopia just doesn't make sense to me. There's really no historical backing. There's no type of evidence whatsoever that has been found up until this point, to my knowledge, that has been found for a little bit of a, a, a black ops type situation of sneaking it out and getting it into Ethiopia. And another one of the problems with this is, you know, not only is there no reference in Scripture, but also the references in Isaiah and Ezekiel that we talked about a little bit ago, those references, if, again, if those are to be considered literal, and I'm not ruling out the possibility that they were not literal, but if they are literal, then the ark has to make it back there because it's after this. It, it's after Manasseh. It's after all of this takes place. Even if it is snuck out, it's got to get back there. Because one of the locations in Ethiopia is is in Axum, it's our um, our church of Lady Mary um, in Axum is one of the supposed locations modern day where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And I just don't know if you're going to give that back. I mean, unless the hemorrhoids and the rats come back, I, that's a possibility. But. I just don't know if it's if it was there and then it got back and then it came back to Axum. I just it that's a whole lot of logistics that just do not add up to me. But another way, another way that people piece together the ark being in Ethiopia is none other than King Solomon. And for what seems like the past 20 podcast episodes, we've mentioned King Solomon in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I just, especially if you're dealing in biblical mysteries, I don't know if you're ever going to get away from King Solomon. Uh, I'm not complaining. Trust me, love this type of stuff. But I'm just stating the fact that uh, everything seems to be secular and, and circle right back around to King Solomon in some shape, form, or fashion, even if it is a conspiracy theory. So King Solomon, it says that he was visited by the Queen of Sheba. In Scripture, it says, and we covered this in the King Solomon's Minds episode, so this is going to be a review for some of you. might be brand new for others. It says that he gave her all the desires of her heart, and she went back with that, that, that just laden with gold and treasures and jewels and camels and everything in the world, and apparently she went back pregnant. Apparently, part of her desires was Solomon. But according to their history, 
she went back and had a son. King Solomon's son and the Queen of Sheba had a son together named Menelik. Menelik, and, and it's fascinating, and I wish I had more time to really just dive into this, but I don't, but the Ethiopian monarchy took on this mantle of Menelik all the way up until here back in the 1970s when finally one in the bloodline, one in the monarchial line said, nope, don't want it, sorry, and he was the last option. And then they had a coup, a little bit of an uprising, uh, rebel um, alliance, Star Wars. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. That's wrong. But, th but they had an insurgency and a new regime took over. But we're talking about Menelik all the way from the time of King Solomon ruling in Ethiopian monarchy all the way through to the 1970s. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy in my opinion. But the, the thing about it is, is they said that she went back pregnant with a ton of treasures, a ton of animals, a ton of treasure, and also pregnant. So Menelik and his, his, his boys... Uh, raid Jerusalem and they go in and they actually steal the Ark of the Covenant. I'm guessing there probably wasn't the greatest relationship. There may have even been some denial uh, of from Menelik, uh, King Solomon, Queen of Sheba. There was a Jerry Springer episode happening there somewhere maybe. And there was significant issues with the father there. And he felt wronged. He felt cheated. He felt... Um, well, not good. And he decides that the best way to get back at old dad is to go and steal some treasure. Hey, namely, that most powerful thing in the world ever. Let me grab that. They took it, brought it in. Uh, it eventually wound up, I won't bore you with the details of step by step by step, but eventually made its way to the Church of Lady Mary in Axum, Ethiopia. There's, there's several problems with this. The biggest, and the only one that I'll cover in the conclusion of this episode here tonight, is I would love, the conspiratorial side of me would love to say that I believe that Menelik, and I do believe, I personally, I believe Menelik existed. But I do not believe it was in Ethiopia. I do not believe that the Queen of Sheba, I believe she existed. I believe that she went to King Solomon. But here's the biggest problem that I have. Sheba is not in Ethiopia. It's actually, if we want to look at it modern day, and you can go to Google Earth and look at the distance, look at the geography here. It's actually located in modern day Yemen. Now look at Yemen on your map. Look at Ethiopia on your map. That is one of the biggest problems. And again, there's not a lot of supporting evidence to say that, yes, it is. But I just find it really problematic that the Queen of Sheba, which was in Yemen, went back to Ethiopia. Why? I don't know. Had her son go steal the most powerful object in the history of man and take it back to a country that was not their home. It doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't add up. Now, the fascinating part is, is the people in Ethiopia still claim that they have the Ark of the Covenant to this day and that they bring it out every year. And the reality of it is, is all the churches in, in this, of this brotherhood, however you want to term it, in Ethiopia, they all have an Ark of the Covenant at their churches. There's that many replicas of it. And they bring it out. This church at Axum, uh, at our Church of Lady Mary, they bring it out every year to show the people. It's under heavy guard, under heavy, heavy guard. But I just don't see it happening. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode uh, of Beyond the Walls of Biblical Mysteries, the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, we never enter into episodes like this going, hey, we have figured it out. That mystery that no man in thousands of years has ever been able to solve, guess what? We found it. We've got it. We answered it. You're welcome, world. No. But it's fun to talk about. It's fun to read about. 
And it's fun to sit down with your friends, having a cup of coffee, having a good spirited debate on who's right or who's wrong. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Beyond the Walls podcast with your host, Ben James. If you would like to know more or give feedback, you can email us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check back soon for more Beyond the Walls podcasts.